naming the beauty of sexuality. I was recently watching a short video where a journalist from a very popular online broadcast that some of you would know, she was ranting for about five or ten minutes about how Christians are imposing biblical values onto her and the rest of the world. And here's some, something that she said in, in the midst of all that. I quote, Stop pushing your version of morality onto the rest of us. I don't care what the Bible says. You believe what you want. I don't care. But leave the rest of us alone to live our lives and believe what we want. Now, for a lot of people, that sounded reasonable. I can imagine a lot of Christians actually saying, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. You believe what you want. I believe what I want. And somehow we all can just get along. But when I heard that, I didn't think that at all. I thought subtly baked into her comments was the notion that discussing a Christian worldview in any public forum whatsoever violates this ideal in our culture of objectivity and neutrality. In other words, don't talk about it at all and keep it to yourself. I've been reading a book lately called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. I would really highly recommend it to you. She argues that secular ideals and culture is not neutral. In fact, it's more aggressive than we've ever seen before. And because it's the normative value system of, of what we're facing today as, as a society, any vocalized Christian worldview simply feels oppressive to those that are drinking the Kool-Aid. It's not different from the time when Jesus stepped into the Roman world 2,000 years ago. There was a set of values, a set of ideals, and Jesus came and he spoke a different way because he believed something entirely different than the world that he stepped into. And I would say that when we think about Christ in our culture, we can actually look back and see the tension that existed even in his time. And as we kind of consider where we see kind of the, the clash of worldviews or the value systems that a Christian following Christ would have opposed to the culture that we're a part of, I can't think of any other issue to better see this clash than in the area of sex and sexuality. Our, our culture has become so sexualized or over-sexualized today that I think people don't even realize it. And it's created this pathway into incredible duplicity. I was thinking about an example of the duplicity that exists where we don't acknowledge how over-sexualized our culture can be. Even Christians are highly influenced by the sexualization of the culture today. Uh, an example would be R&B singer R. Kelly. If you're in the 40s, uh, maybe 50s, I don't know, late 30s, you, you grew up when I did and you understood that this guy was like a massive, massive star and uh, wrote three to 500 songs. But if you've been watching the news recently, he was sentenced to 20 years in a federal prison for sex crimes involving minors. He had over 45 victims come forward with testimonies of rape, abuse, and exploitation, 11 of which were minors when the crimes were committed. Strangely enough, we have to reflect on this, for 25 years he had been writing all of these hundreds of songs which so focused on sex that it normalized it to people as they simply sang along. And I want to read to you some of the titles which he wrote. Bump and Grind, Don't You Say No. Not, age ain't nothing but a number. Sex planet, like a real freak. And I, don't want, I, I didn't want to mention this, but he actually had a whole series, a whole volume called Trapped in the Closet. 
And occasionally he wrote a song that many of us are familiar with called, I Believe I Can Fly, just to normalize the fact that you can write about extremes of sexuality and then you can create a really great song that will make you a massive pop star where nobody seems to smell what you're cooking. And, and what happened here is that not only did he sing these things, but he was living them behind closed doors and a culture woke up the moment 45 people came forward and said, he's not just singing this, he sang it. But you know what also happened? Multiple people standing outside the courtroom saying, we will not play your music. Friends, I wanna ask the question, why were we doing it before? Why were we accepting songs like age ain't nothing but a number and woman don't you say no? It was shocking to learn that people actually do believe the words that they say, even if they're singing them. Some Christians obviously remember these songs and probably sang them, and I'm not trying to get you to backslide today. I'm just bringing up the fact that there is a duplicity even among people who follow Jesus. And he's not the only one. We could talk about movies and music and novels and social media. And here's what subtly is happening in our culture. It's taking something that is entirely beautiful, that's a gift from God, like sex and sexuality, and it is making it something other than that, and it's ugly. It's ugly. But God made it not to be so. And, and I believe that we're so influenced by this, don't even know it, because, friends, it's the air that we breathe. Lest you think that I'm trying to pour on the guilt towards you today, I'm simply saying we're part of a culture where we're breathing all of this in. You cannot escape it. So the question is, what do we do in the midst of all this? And I want to say the best thing that we can possibly do is become salt and light in a depraved world. We represent healthy sex and sexuality by living it, talking about it, and teaching it to the next generation. And there's a passage of scripture that I think is very fitting for this conversation in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but I have to bring you into the context or it won't really make sense. So let's just talk about the city of Corinth for a second. In the city of Corinth, there was about a thousand prostitutes that served in multiple temples throughout the city. And their job was to be present for when a worshiper would come to give a sacrifice to one of those deities, and then they would join themselves to that said prostitute. Corinth was so bad that the word Corinthianized became a verb, and it represented a person that had become sexually deviant. So if they could identify a person that had gone extreme in their sexuality, they would say from surrounding regions and cities, they've been Corinthianized. That's how bad the culture of Corinth was. And Gentiles, being mostly pagan, obviously participated in this kind of worship and deviant sexuality, which means that when Christians came to Christ in the city of Corinth, as Paul's writing to them, and they certainly had, they came out of this extreme form of worship, which was attached to that sexuality. And Paul was with them for 16 months. He knew them well. He understood the culture quite well. And he's writing a letter later on because he's hearing about a type of sexual immorality that isn't even found in the world. He says that in 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, that you guys, some of the people in the church have gone so far in their sexuality, they've become so influenced that it's actually worse than what you see in this depraved culture. So that was not a good day for the church at Corinth to read what Paul had to say, but he wrote a letter 
and he talks a lot about sexuality. And you can imagine how the Corinthians, probably about this time, they had known the Lord for about six years. He's writing a, a, a letter to them six years after most of their conversions, and they're confused. There was actually a belief in the Corinthian church that the body doesn't matter because God's gonna do away with the body. So whatever you do in the body, God's ultimately going to burn it up. So it doesn't have any bearing or any effect on your soul and your relationship with God and others. So occasionally they would visit prostitutes, both men and women. And this was an accepted part of what they thought because of how heavy the culture was and how sexualized it was. And here's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 through 20. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice verse 11, lest you think he's just talking about the culture. He says this, such were some of you. Every one of those categories that he mentions, he's saying some of you were this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Now park right there. That's what I mean by there are statements in their culture that they believe. Paul is not affirming this. He's saying, you say, here's a cultural statement, you say. He's not saying, this isn't God's truth. He's actually about to contrast it. So he goes on, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So here's his answer. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I just read it to you plainly. I hope you feel happy. What I'd like to do with the rest of our time is walk through what I believe were cultural lies and still remain true. And we're going to go through not only secular cultural lies, but also Christian cultural lies as well. And then we want to land on what is sex and sexuality supposed to really be like and how can we reclaim the beauty of it and move forward together. So the first is lies we believe about sex from secular culture. The first is sex is purely a physical act. I'll remind you in verse 12, he makes the statement, they say all things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. And the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. In other words, doesn't really matter that much. The statement here is basically saying that sex is a physical desire that needs to be satisfied. Similar to when you're hungry, you eat food 
When you have sexual desire, you satisfy it by doing whatever, not taking into consideration the parameters and the design that God has given to us. So he's actually talking to Christians and not just about the culture. And he's saying that you can't think the way that you used to. You can't behave the way that you used to because sex is not just a physical act, even though that's what the culture has sold them. If sex is just physical, then why is rape more psychologically damaging than other forms of physical violence? If sex is just physical, then why is adultery so hard to get over and receive lasting healing? If sex is just physical, then why is it that people's deepest regrets are often sexual in nature? No, Paul refutes this by saying that our body has been purchased by Christ. So our goal is to glorify him with the way that we live. And it is possible as followers of Jesus. The second lie is like something that would piggyback this idea. And that is sex is simply a pleasurable experience. So the Corinthian culture said this, and I think we share it today. If I feel it, then I should do it. Or else, why would it be in my desires? And it's as simple as that. I do what I want to do when I feel what I feel. And this also, to me, reminds me of what we experience today in what is called hookup culture. If you don't know what hookup culture, there's a term called hooking up. And it's a catch-all phrase today that refers to connecting with someone to have a physical or sexual experience with no strings attached. There are lots of apps that have been derived and created. And if you're maybe on the older spectrum, I'm not saying you're old, but if you're on the older spectrum and you have no clue that this exists, your kids do. This is talked about at school. They all understand that this is the reality today. I'm not saying they're participating in it, but lots of people are participating in what is called hookup culture. And this has been created literally just to appeal to that base appetite of the desire that we have for sexuality. And here's what it teaches. It teaches to take rather than give. It teaches to use rather than love. And it teaches to be physical without emotional and commitment doesn't even matter. And it strikes right against what God has created sex to be. The third lie is my sexual expression doesn't affect anyone else. Clearly the culture then and now has this belief uh, that what I do sexually doesn't affect anyone. Well, Paul doesn't agree with that. And, and I think in order to believe that, you have to do away with, an, with a creator entirely. You have to do away with there's a God who made us and he gave us a, sexual, a sexuality and a sexual drive and he's given us parameters for that. You have to do away with God entirely to believe that what we do with our body and what we do with our sexuality doesn't affect other people. In verse 18, Paul says, that's not true. Other sin you commit, is outside the body, but sexual sin is against yourself. Through these verses, he makes a case that sexual sin first is against God. Secondly, sexual sin is against the person that you participate in that particular experience with. And then thirdly, all sin is not the same because sexual sin is against your body. Now I know we say all sin is the same. All transgression is the same before God. And that's partially true. 
before God. He treats it the same. He cleanses us. He washes us white as snow. Come on, amen. Thank you for the redemption of God. But the truth is that sexual sin has far more consequences in the way that it affects us because we are an integrated being, spirit, soul, and body. And we cannot separate these God-given things that he has given to us. This has such a power This is such an important thing that when we commit sin sexually, it affects spirit, soul, and body because we are integrated beings. And although we in our culture for sure is trying to separate these things like it doesn't matter and it's not that big of a deal, it's not true. And that's why Paul says, oh, you don't know. I must warn you how serious that this is. And can we just pause and reflect for a moment And be honest today that not only is the Bible chock full of the destruction of sexual sin, but we see it today. How many families have been ruined? How many marriages? How how many children? How much in our society just reeks with the destruction because of sexual sin, sexual immorality? And that's what Paul is talking about. The fourth lie is sexual compatibility must be tested before we are invested. Now that rhymes, so I want to throw that in there. I can't find it in the Bible the way that I said it, so I'm going to C.S. Lewis here. C.S. Lewis had a great analogy in his book called The Four Loves, and I just need you to not get offended, but this is what he said. He said, the guy who wants to have sex with a girl, and and by the way, it, it it, it is in the perspective of male, but you can transpose these, so please do that. The guy who wants to have sex with a girl without marrying her feels about the girl the way the bulimic feels about food. The bulimic loves the taste of food. It brings pleasure and comfort to them, but they don't want to carry around the calories and the fat of the food in their body, so they taste it, and then they vomit it back out. That's what the guy is doing. I love the taste of you, but I don't want all of you yet, so we'll have sex, but I won't fully unite and commit myself to you. That's what it's like today that we should check our sexual compatibility as if that's a real thing. It's not. Number five is sex and marriage is boring. And the lie is this, monogamy is monotony, monotony and, and, and that's just monotonous. That's boring. We should have as many partners and as many experiences as we possibly can. And the studies show today, as many of them that, that I have read, and my son Isaiah sent me some this morning as he was listening to the message last night, studies actually show that people who are participating in multiple partners and hookup culture are actually more lonely, more depressed, and it isn't satisfying them. And the opposite is true for those that are married. And I'm sorry today that our culture has so over-sexualized us. Sometimes when we talk about it at church, we kind of drum it up to be this like pleasure factory. And that's not what it's about. It's far more than that. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So give me a few minutes. Sex and marriage is not boring. Sex and marriage is godly. Sex and marriage is spiritual. It's not meant to be emulated after the world or something like what we see in the world anyways. Number six is sexual desires cannot be controlled. This is a lie that gets believed. So men get a pass because men can't help themselves and women get shamed because if they participate in that, you know, they're 10 times worse than men. And there's this idea that, you know, young people are young people. So sow your wild oats because you're just going to do it anyways because you can't really control yourself because sexual purity is just not possible. So cheating is normal. Hookup culture is inevitable. Saving yourself for your spouse isn't doable. Virginity is certainly ancient and we shouldn't shouldn't think about that or teach that today, should we? That's the lie. 
and that anybody that somehow saves themselves, what, what did you do that? Why would you do that? That's the way that it's, that it's thought of. It's ancient and outdated. But I want to also bring up some lies that we believe about sex from Christian culture. So buckle your seatbelt because Christians have not stewarded this well, nor have we taught sexuality in a way that we probably should have. Some have, but many have not. And in the vacuum of our silence, I believe that there are so many lies that are picked up, not just from church culture, but in our Christian homes where sex and sexuality should be understood and it should be taught and it should be modeled in a way where our kids are educated in our homes as well. So here are some lies. As a pastor, I'm just, these are just things I wrote down to share my heart with you that I deal with. Sometimes, I think there's a few of these you might go, I don't think so, but I do think so. So I'm telling you, these are, these are the things people are really struggling with behind closed doors and I wanna make you aware of them. Number one, all physical contact leads to sexual activity. You know, this is the doctrine of fear. Don't hold hands, don't touch, don't kiss, don't do anything because you're not capable of restraining yourself. And you know what subtly that teaches? At the minute they do touch, they go right all the way. How many young people I've talked to that literally had so much fear, even like exploring that curiosity of what used to be innocent, and yet they could not handle one moment by being around or alone with the opposite sex because they weren't taught well about this. And so there's just this subtle fear or even this overt fear in their life. Now, some of you parents are like, don't we wanna teach healthy boundaries? Yes, we wanna spend more time talking about healthy boundaries. We wanna help them understand it by the message that we send, but also the example that we have. We should teach this more often and talk about it a lot with our kids. We should have healthy physical boundaries, but we shouldn't teach fear because it doesn't work. Number two, sex is dirty and shouldn't be talked about at all. Many were raised in homes where sex was not discussed and it's kind of like shameful to even mention it. Like, don't talk about that. I don't want a show of hands, but the majority of people that I talk to, when they're honest about this, particularly as we get into older generations, this is just something you don't talk about. This is just something that isn't mentioned. And so my question today is that if we don't talk about it and sex is portrayed in the culture as strongly as it is, what are our kids picking up? So of course they feel a sense of shame bringing it up in our homes because we're supposed to initiate that. And I know today that many are upset with what public schools and even health officials are teaching in terms of sex education. People are so angry about it. People are so upset about it. But shouldn't we be a little bit more upset about what we're not teaching in Christian homes? Because if what we have is better and it outlasts and it outshines whatever else is being portrayed or taught, why would we be so fearful and so concerned? Do I want them to teach that in public schools? Of course not. Do I disagree with all of it? Almost. <laughs> Have I read many of the documents that have been sent to me about what some, some things that are propagated and taught as normal in, in public school? I've, I've read that stuff. I, I thoroughly disagree with it. I'm a Bible guy, amen. That's what I teach and stand on. But I just wanna tell you, I feel like we're not equally or even more upset about what is not happening in the Christian home. And I do wanna tell you today that if we're not educating our kids in our home, and I mean sexual education, they will get it from somewhere. And our job is not just to get mad about what other people are giving them. Our job is to get responsible about what we 
are giving them. And so in our homes, we want to do that well. In the church, we want to be a supplement to that as well because God is not embarrassed about sex. He gave us our sexuality. He gave us parameters for it, and we should talk about it a whole lot more often. And you guys don't look uncomfortable today at all, not even a little bit, like a pin could drop, and I could hear a mouse if it ran across the floor. And that's fine. That's fine. It's totally fine. Some of you don't want to talk about this in church, and that's exactly why we need to, because our kids are suffering. And if you don't know it, get in the game. Get in the game. Our kids are struggling. And I'll give you some stats to prove it. Number three, women don't really care about sex. That happens in the church, this sort of this subtle thing, because it's a lot of male pastors. And when they talk, when they talk about sex and pornography, they're speaking straight to the guy as though women don't even care at all. As women, like women don't even have a sex drive. Last time I checked in the Bible, it says male and female, and God gave a sex drive to both of them. But there's this subtle message, isn't there? Sometimes by what is and is not taught that women don't care about sex. And here's what I would say. When women don't care about sex in their marriage, they should, and it's not a healthy thing. The same is true for men if they care too much about sex. But I've got so much more to go. Number four, marriage will fulfill all of my sexual desires. When I get to the starting line, man, it's going to be bliss. It's going to be amazing. Everything that I saved up for and waited for is going to be fulfilled in this person. Can you imagine the expectation that is? Like you are going to fulfill all the desires. I'm not even asking if I have right desires or not, but I just, God's going to bless me through you. We haven't even talked about it yet, but I know that's what's going to happen. (laughs) <laughs> had no discussion with you about this yet, but I just can't wait for marriage. Now, if I gave you a pie chart, sex and marriage is, is very important, but it's not the most important. And, and, and this, this is a very powerful principle. Sex is very important in marriage, but in the pie chart, it's a small piece of the pie because we are integrated beings and marriage is integrated as well. It involves all of us. Number five, if I remain a virgin before marriage, God's going to reward me with a great sex life. Bridget and I have talked to many couples that their wedding night was supposed to be this explosion of awesomeness, and it wasn't. It was discouraging. It was weird. It was strange. It was uncomfortable. But nobody ever told him that. Nobody ever told them that it would be uncomfortable. Didn't even give them practical understanding about what it might be like. We want it to be great. We want it to be great. But it isn't just about pleasure, friends. It's about connection. Amen. It's about emotion. It's about exchange. It's about being known, fully known. And so there are many that believe this. I teach, obviously, virginity. I want people to wait, but I don't want them to wait with these expectations about what God is going to give them. We want to wait because we want to glorify God with our body. That's what Paul said. Glorify God with your body. What you do, do as unto the Lord. Not because at the start line and the finish line, you're going to get this massive reward. I think God will bless you, but it doesn't always equal, once again, some idea that we have in our mind of what sex is supposed to be like. Number six, if I had sex before marriage, then I'm tainted. I'm damaged goods. I'm I'm no good. And God's redemption is greater than our past sexual activity. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. We receive communion today. He cleanses us. He's good at that. 
Number seven, sexual purity is just for single people. Last I checked, the statistics about porn and adultery were higher for married people. So that's just not true. Number eight, women are responsible for men's sexual sin. Now, this is not true, okay? So ladies, look, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, I have no problem teaching that we all should be modest, both men and women. I always thought it was weird that uh, when you watch Christian tell, I'm just getting a little loose right now. Got my loose clothes on, I'm feeling it. But I always thought it was weird that like, once again, it's very male dominated. And so when you think about it, um, so it's almost like men don't need to be modest. But I've watched Christian television sometimes and some massive like buff guy, I'm, I'm talking like this guy for sure spends more time in the gym than in the Bible. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying. Or he's just stabbing himself with steroids, all right? You do know to get a six pack, you have to have 5% body fat, okay? So when I see that, whatever, all right? So <laughs> I, I know what it takes to get that and I've never had it in my life. I'm satisfied with a one pack or a barrel as I call it. It's fine, <laughs> amen. You just join the fun. It's awesome. If you have it right now, you ain't keeping it forever and it's probably genetics or steroids. But, <laughs> but my, point, my point is this, is, is, is that I've seen these, these guys and, and, and again, I'm not trying to bash all Christian television, but I always thought it was funny. And they're just like wearing this skin tight shirt and they're like, everybody stand before the Lord. And like their muscles are just popping. And like, nobody says anything to the guy. Like, but he's got biceps the size of my head and a shirt that shows you everything. I mean, this is just amazing. So it's, so, but we, but the subtle thing that's picked up is it's how women dress, not how men dress. It's how women look. It's how women carry themselves, but not how men. Women have a sex drive too. Modesty is for all of us. We need to learn, I have no problem teaching that, but I also want to teach self-control. No matter what other people do, if we don't have self-control, then we're not being led by the Holy Spirit in totality. So it's a both and, self-control, modesty. We want to wrestle over these conversations. Friends, I mean, I'm just, as a father, I can tell you how hard it is for my daughter to go shopping. Oh my gosh. It's just a wild world that we live in to get the right kind of clothes. It's an extra hour of shopping. And so I just, my heart goes out, you know, to like this judgmental culture that we live in. Like in Christ, we've just got to do better. Can I just get an amen? And ladies, you should just say amen louder. I don't know what it is, but yeah, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to speak to you today too, you know, let's get out from under some of this bondage. But number nine, if I blow it and have sex before marriage, then I need to marry that person. I want to tell you something today. Guilt marriage does not work. Guilt marriage does not work. All right? If we blew it and we had sex with someone, if you're single or if you're a young person, if you're watching this online, you need to surrender to the Lord. That's what you need to do. You need to follow Jesus. But some people believe, well, now I've joined myself to them and I just got to marry them and they live happily miserable after. And I just want to say, this is where we get people into our corner. We talk to family. We talk to godly people. We talk to pastors. But you don't, guilt marriage doesn't work. Just, just saying. Number 10, faithful Christians don't ever experience same-sex attraction. That's a lie. There's, a lot of God, there's some godly people in our church that have had the courage to be honest about their same-sex attraction. It's unwanted. They hate it. They don't want to talk about it. 
And I just think well of them that they, that they are doing the right thing by following Jesus. And it's taken a lot from them to do that by opening that up to me. And the fact is, is that we all struggle with stuff and everybody since the fall is sexually broken. Everybody. Every person is sexually broken in one way or another since the fall. That's why the first thing that happened when Adam and Eve fell is they looked at themselves and saw that they were naked and they ran and tried to cover themselves up. And I would say that we're living in a generation and Jesus stepped into a generation that stopped covering themselves up. But isn't it amazing in the story in Genesis chapter three, when God came looking for them, he covered them. And that's what he does. He restores us in Christ. He covered them. And he does that today. Well, you got to breathe and we got to move on. I want to move into the truth about the beauty of sex from Scripture. There's a lot of lies, but the beauty of God's truth is so much greater. Number one, sex is a gift from God. And Paul reminded the Corinthians that sex and marriage is about the two becoming one. It's a gift for us to be known fully as, as, we, as we are. And I do want to make this distinction because I haven't said it yet. Sex is both a noun and a verb. When we use the term sex today, a lot of times people will refer to maleness and femaleness. So our sex, our biological sex. Sex is also a verb. It's activity that is in the confines, as you'll see from point two, between one man and one, move, one woman in covenant relationship. So when I interchange the word sexuality, sexuality, I'm referring to an integrated person, maleness and femaleness. And people don't agree on the definitions of this, so I'm not going to go into it because it, it could get theoretical. But I just want you to know when I use these terms what, what I'm talking about. Number two, sex is for one man and one woman in covenant relationship. And I want to say this because I'm going to talk about homosexuality next week. We are not just against sexual immorality and homosexuality because we are angry or trying to guard something as though we as Christians are the perfect model of what that is. We are just so for covenantal love that anything that gets in the way of what God has given us, we just don't want because we know what it does. I am so for marriage. I am so for covenant relationship and sex in marriage and that being healthy and understood and talked about that I can't imagine doing this. And so my leadership on these, this deviant sexuality is not about anger. It's not about being upset. It's not about casting stones in some other person's arena of sin. It's simply about passion for what God has truly given. And if you're here and you're single, and, and you're, or you're widowed or you're a widower, if, if that's where you are, I'm not saying that the apex of your experience should be marriage and therefore having sex in marriage. God has given a grace for many people to be single and to just be satisfied completely and totally by God. There's a grace for that. You can totally fulfill your purpose in that. I'm not talking about that today, but I just wanted to make the comment in case you didn't know that it was assumed. Number three, sex is the foundation that brings about the blessing of family. The first thing God said to Adam and Eve as they become this married couple, he said, be fruitful and multiply. That means have sex and have a lot of children. <laughs> be fruitful, it doesn't quite get there. But have sex, have sexual relationship, be fruitful and multiply, have kids. Psalm 139 says, children are a blessing from the Lord. One of the reasons that sex is so beautiful is because of what it produces. It produces all of us. That we get to engage in creating a human being. What a blessing. 
What an amazing thing uh, that is. And some of your women like, really? Amazing. Yeah, it's just so amazing. <laughs> Everything I went through. <laughs> Didn't feel amazing, but yes, I understand. Pastor Ben, amen. Praise the Lord. Yes, it's true. <laughs> I'm holding back. Sex is the foundation that brings about the blessing of family. You know, when I think about the subject of abortion, when, whenever you talk about abortion as a Christian, it's uncomfortable. Not because it's hard to talk about truth, but because we're really talking about a consequence that's so far over here. If we don't go back and talk about how to steward sexuality, we're really never touching this. God gave us a design that sex was to be between one man and one woman, and one of the blessings was that family comes as a result of that, and children are a blessing from the Lord. And now we live in a culture where we have accepted that if you have an unwanted pregnancy, you can go to the doctor or you can go to a clinic, and they can take that fetus inside you. They can, they can take that out, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. And so as Christians, you know, I mean, most would say that's wrong. But the reality is, is that we're not just going to deal with that by pushing back against abortion, we have to understand the real issue is the misunderstanding and the misstewardship of sexuality. And this even happens in the church, doesn't it? Is that if people improperly practice sex, which is the gift that God gave, then they'll never value what's supposed to flow out of that sexual relationship, which is Psalm 139, children are a blessing from the Lord. And so we devalue what God says is a blessing in its proper context because we're not practicing it in its proper context. And that's what we see in the culture. So I'm not angry at anybody out here. I understand how they got there. So my pushback isn't just legislation. My pushback is to teach healthy, godly sexuality first in our home, second as often as we can. And really walk in a way as Christians where children are a blessing from the Lord and the way we live family, it's evident. And that hasn't always been the case, has it? That isn't always the case among people that call themselves Christians. Number four, sex is spiritual and it points to a greater reality. I talked about sex being a, a gift in marriage where we can know someone and be known as we truly are. In Genesis 2, they were naked and unashamed. In Genesis 3, they were naked and ashamed. And God restores this in Christ so that what we have in our marriage, what we call sex and our sexuality, can be restored back to the blessing that God created it for. And it really does point to a greater reality that we could experience the goodness of God, love and sacrifice because sex is not about me getting something from you. It's about me giving something to you and have, having an experience of intimacy that I can't have with anyone else. It's exclusive. It's so powerful, isn't it? You could shake your head at any time. It's so powerful. I always thought it was strange. I, I remember, um, man, I got time, so I'm just like feeling it. When I was a younger Christian, there was a church called Mars Hill and a pastor named Mark Driscoll. And that church, I heard a murmur. I heard it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, honestly, I, I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, honestly. And some of you used to go to Mars Hill and some, some people have been really, really hurt. I've had those conversations. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to bash him, although I have a lot to say, but I would say 
Um, I would say that one of the reasons that church got popular because I was actually a young guy and I remember they would have these Sunday nights where they would just talk openly about sex and we'll answer any question. And it almost got like RX rated, uh, the things that he, that he would say. And certainly I think it produced a level of misogyny and, and so on and so forth. Um, and me even bringing up the word misogyny, some people are like, you're a liberal. It's, uh, I love how Christians are so not judgmental, but... It's just amazing, you know, it's just so good at not judging people. And, um, but I remember like as a young guy, like we all wanted to go up and like listen to what Mark Driscoll was talking about on Sunday night. And in my spirit, I was like, I just can't, like the way he talks about this feels crude to me. Like, you know, I didn't grow up talking to my parents about this at all. And I have a horrible past that God has redeemed me uh, and our family from. And I thank God for that. But I just want to say, I just have always been suspicious, not when pastors talk about sex, but the way they talk about it as like a cultural thing where it's just this pleasurable experience. And I can understand that it's hard to talk about it. So it gets a little goofy and I make a few jokes because honestly, I kind of have to because we're talking about the most intimate thing that is shared between a husband and wife. But the reality is, is that I don't want to talk about it in a crude way. And I haven't appreciated that as a Uh, as I was a young man and as a pastor today, I always get a little leery about that. I'm like, that doesn't feel healthy. And we've had so many pastors, so many men and women of God fall. And whenever I hear them talk like that, I always wonder, is there something wrong with the way that you think? Is there something wrong underneath the soil of your life? Because I'm not saying it was for him, I don't know, but I'm just simply saying it just doesn't feel right to me. It almost sounds pornographic. And I think we should talk about it in such a holy way, but we should talk about it a lot, a lot more. And obviously today we are for 50 minutes. Number five, our sexuality is a part of our discipleship. For the married, it teaches us to give and go beyond a mere physical desire to be intimate, to love, to be sacrificial, to share with one that we don't invite anyone else into, to be exclusive and something so deeply precious and honorable. But for the single, we learn the power of saying no, and this touches the gospel and sanctification, that we would learn self-control and to follow the Holy Spirit. And if you are single, you might be saying, well, I don't get to participate in this, but you can still experience God in transformation by you walking in the power of self-control because you're led by the Holy Spirit. And you're not just animalistic. It's not a base desire that's driving us to do something that we sort of think is a physiological need when it's really not. It's a blessing, it's a gift in its right context. And so for us to say no when it's not the right context actually is part of our discipleship and, uh, and teaches us in sanctification. And the last thing is this, our sexuality is a witness to the world. The way we steward our sexuality is a picture of godliness in the midst of godlessness. Sexual faithfulness, fidelity, reveals love that cherishes one person and preserves a legacy that's worth emulating. And I think the world wants to see it. It doesn't help that the statistics are so bad among the church and among Christians. And so one of the things we wanna do is recapture the beauty of sex and sexuality in a way where it's a witness to the world, the way we live it, the way we talk about it. So what are our application points today? That's what you're wondering. Ben, what should I do? The first, Paul just says it very clearly. He says, flee all forms of sexual immorality. He says, flee, don't negotiate, don't play around with it. Don't go to the temple and sleep with prostitutes. He's saying, don't entertain it. And we may not have a thousand prostitutes today, but we have thousands of porn websites that many frequent. 
If the statistics are true, and they are staggering, it says 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites, and one-third of those are women. The porn industry has more traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined, and it makes more money than almost all major sports. It's an epidemic in the church and in the world, and it just, it just is. Porn changes the brain, it objectifies the human body, it exploits people for profit, and it reduces sexuality to something ugly, and we don't want it. And I just want to say today, it may be the new drug, but we're not users. And I mean that in rated R movies, I mean that in softcore porn, I don't just mean rated X stuff, friends, I mean we've got to go back to a place where holiness is pure and we want to glorify God with our bodies. There's something holy about our bodies. There's something holy about the way we think about this in marriage. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, do not allow the marriage bedroom to be defiled. And I think one of the ways that that happens is we bring things into it through the way that we think and what we're entertaining. And so I want to encourage you, and I want to say this honestly and clearly without shame. I'm not going to ask people to come forward after the service to... uh, to repent in front of everybody for your sexual sin. I think that could embarrass you and maybe deepen the wounds that you might have. But if you do have sexual sin in your life, it's not just gonna get better. You gotta walk in the light as he is in the light and you'll have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you have sexual sin in your life, it's time to get free. And so I wanna encourage you to take a step And if that step is you send me an email or you send Pastor Scott or Susani, if you're male, if you're female, whatever you're struggling with, it's time to come out from that. Don't push it off. Don't hope it gets better. Don't just pray it away. If you've been doing this stuff for years and years, if you're flirting with things, if you're flirting at office, if if, if you're entertaining stuff in your mind and you need help, you need help. It's okay. We struggle, but I don't want to see you fall. We struggle but I don't want to see you fall. And here's what I tell people. I said this to the young adults this last week. Everybody has struggles, but you don't have to have secrets. Secrets will eat you alive. Martin Luther, the great reformer said, if your head is made of butter, stay away from the fire. (laughs) Sexually, we're all made of butter. And so we flee. Number two is grow in your biblical understanding of sex and sexuality. On your notes, I gave you a short list of books that I would encourage you to read. Um, Love Thy Body, I think you should start there. Um, There's a number of books that you could talk to your kids about, which is my third point. Teach your kids about sexuality before the culture does. You want to take back our kids? Let's start with the ones that we have. Why is it a good idea to get involved in children's ministry? Because we have a great opportunity to teach and model to our children what God's way is like. Let's do it in our homes. Let's do it in the church. But let's do it. Amen? Would you stand to your feet today and let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Somebody last night said to me, um, I wish I knew this when I was a teenager. (laughs) That's fair. But what if we could teach teenagers? What if we could talk more to our teenagers about this? I mean, I, I don't know that I hit everything. I hit a lot, but there's so much we could talk about. But I want to commit this into your hands and into your heart with the influence that God has given you to steward it well. If you're married, that you would steward that well in your marriage, 
Don't stop talking about sex and marriage. You guys should talk about that. I'm not trying to stir up like the fires of passion here today. I'm just saying you do need to talk about it. It's something that should be a part of your conversation. If you're not married, if you're single, this is what you do. You surrender your sexuality to the Lord. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, you surrender your sexuality to the Lord and then come back next week because I'm going to talk very clearly, as I did today, about that. But also for our children, let's teach and model to our children. So if you, if you would, would you put your hands out and let's pray together. You can pray your prayer and what you want to receive from the Lord and how you want to respond to this. But Father, I thank you for our church. And God, I thank you also that in the midst of a culture that is over-sexualized and that is pushing a narrative onto us, we say we're not afraid. We're not afraid of an ungodly perspective or an unbiblical narrative. Many of us have walked that life. Many of us have done those things. Many of us have, have lived in that, and so we understand. But now we know what the Bible teaches, and a lot of us have not been restored back to healthy sexuality. And so I just pray, oh God, that you would do that. I pray that you would start us on a journey where we would recapture the beauty of something that you gave, and we would not allow the culture to steal that from us. And it isn't about what they're doing. It's really about what we're doing with you. And so I, I pray that the responsibility would be placed back upon us today and that we would grab a hold of what your word says and we would dive deeper in that. And our children and their children would benefit from how deep we go so that we could talk about it and live right in this way to glorify you with our body. Would you help us to do that? And if there's anybody here, Lord, today that is struggling with some form of sexual sin, some bondage that exists, God, I thank you for freedom. And I pray that hope would rise today in their heart and that you would give them the wisdom for the next step. We receive your word today. We thank you for it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.